of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to Jeff Carter. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Len. Nice to be back on your show. Good. Everyone here knows you as uh, the half of uh, 50 Reasons for 50 Years. And that is uh, 10 years old now. Can you believe it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, you've been on here. You're a contributor to Kennedy's and King now. And we're going to talk about today one of the articles that you've um, posted there, which is always of interest to me. It has something to do with Fletcher Prouty, so that's always um, of interest to me. So let's just get to it. It's called Old Wine and New Bottles, Fletcher Prouty's New Critics Recycle the Past. Yes, I added that title to it because the critiques, for the most part, are working from uh, material that was developed in the 1990s in the wake of Oliver Stone's JFK film. And there's been really not very much developed since then. So somehow these 30-year-old 30, 30 complaints are being recycled. Well, here, let me ask you one question. Let's put it in perspective. Sure. We're, sure. we're talking about critiques of Colonel Fletcher Prouty. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with him. But what was it about Fletcher Prouty that caught your interest that you would research him or write about him? Was there something in particular? Well, I... I think just I personally became aware of Prouty fairly shortly after I initially got on the internet. And that was back in late 1998. I was on Netscape Navigator and their homepage featured a little, a little uh, list of recommended sites that would change. And one of those things that came up in my, my first days, uh, sort of cyber surfing, was Dave Ratcliffe's Radical.org. So I got on that site, like, immediately. And, of course, Understanding Special Operations was published on there, and then a whole host of other links uh, related to that, including, eventually, Black Op, Black Op Radio, which uh, followed up, what, two or three years after 1998? So that's where I initially became interested. And corresponding with that is I was able to understand that Proudy's work appearing online had faced a series of difficulties, i.e. sort of critics 
who would insult the man um, and also uh, difficulties having his work properly linked or uh, as eventually uh, you discovered um, being appropriately uh, highlighted on, on supposedly an objective academic site such as Wikipedia. Yeah, so that, that was meant. definitely I, part of my understanding. Yeah, no, I guess Go I ahead, was asking sorry. what what attracted to you, like if you, like, you know, if I read Mark Lane or something like that, or, or some of these, uh, Jim Garrison. Okay, but for me it was Fletcher. When I first heard uh, his discussions with um, Dave Radcliffe or John Judge or that, I just was impressed that he was there that he was talking about things he really did and you would look it up and and as you go on to point out he was where he said he was so you know he, he was here he was there and he was just you know in Cairo he was in Tokyo and he was so that's what really impressed me about Fletcher he was one of the few people that talked firsthand he didn't say I heard about this operation he said no this is how we did it and that's really what caught my interest in Fletcher and then of course I wrote him letters and became friends but I just was wondering if there's something just about Fletcher that you recall catching your your interest in intriguing you. Because well, he wasn't really well known at all. Special you know? yeah. I understand special operations. I really uh, enjoyed uh, the special operations book because it was it was based on his um, experiences in the military, and it's a great story and. Uh, uh, he was witness to, to extraordinary things and an extraordinary period of time. Of course, being portrayed uh, in the JFK film that, you know, everyone, uh, for the most part, believes, you know, that's one of the best scenes of the whole movie, right? It's, it's memorable. And, and so that, that's an extra um, level on top of that. And then followed by um, the obvious... Uh, attempts uh, to sort of uh, besmirch the man. Right, okay, so that's what brings us up then to this new article you've you've written. And um, I guess it starts with uh, people being upset about a portrayal in the Assassination Records and Review Board in which he was called in to kind of testify and they had to ask they were going to ask him a bunch of questions and it looks like he you know he hummed and hawed or something like that but then if you know the real story um you you recognize like well uh i know it so why don't you uh, detail to me then how these various things fell in place for you because it is the you know the people who critique him who say oh he doesn't remember this he doesn't yeah yeah he does but you know if you're talking to George Joannidis and the House Select Committee and Assassinations you're not going to say anything you re you know you realize this is like holy cow and when you're talking to these guys on the AARB now it goes like <laughs> I think his last question said look if you if you really want to know more why don't you interview Larry Houston you know. And I just right. laugh when I read that, you know, it's like, because uh, he was the general counsel to the CIA, he knew everything, <laughs> and they didn't, they're not asking him anything, so he's kind of pointing out to him, you guys aren't really looking, are you? That's right. That's right. Well, uh, that uh, ARRB appearance um, was uh, kind of obliquely mentioned 
in um, John McAdams' uh, long list of uh, of uh, reasons to to dislike Mr. Prouty, and I think we're uh, that's been around since the late '90s, I think, and and <clears throat> um, is is oft referred to, but. Uh, that appearance received sort of renewed uh, interest um, because one of uh, uh, the bloggers out there ran a series working through each of the points that the summary uh, published by the ARRB military records team um, produced in the aftermath of their interview. And the summary um, uh, it's kind of brutal, actually, when if you read through it and and just on its surface, and uh, so so that had been coming up on on some of the forums, and what I noticed right away was uh, the repeat of the word allegation, and therefore uh, each of the points that this, this summary. Uh, uses to kind of dispute or uh, uh, undermine uh, Fletcher Prouty's uh, uh, observations is is described as an allegation. And that got my radar peaked, to be quite honest, because it's a loaded term and it's used uh, directly as a loaded term. And yet most of the people who uh, read through the summary and, and sort of have, have discussed it as, as uh, being, you know, a successful takedown of Mr. Prouty seem to, uh, seem to miss uh, the loaded term as it was and, and don't really see that uh, this was not uh, a fair process certainly not the summary itself. Well, what's interesting is that you have gone through the emails of these guys talking to each other before the actual interview date and saying, and how, how are we going to make this not look like uh, a hit piece? You know, how, you know, they're yeah. going through the, <laughs> the motions of, and you rightly point out when you have to actually say that, then you realize they're working on a hit piece. You just don't want it to look like that. And um, well, and, yes, and, and a month before a month before Prouty was even contacted to set up the interview, uh, there's memos being distributed where where they've already dismissed him, and and are stating that uh, we don't believe anything he says, and uh, and and so on. So it was it was kind of developed. The interview was developed ahead of time to serve as a a kind of a confrontation and uh and they were going to to t- uh take him down it, it, they discussed that ahead of time and um and and they also identified you know certain aspects of the interview were were in their minds extremely important but this information was not shared with Prouty ahead of time he was given a, a different uh, uh, viewpoint in terms of what this interview was going to be all about. Uh, so, 
um, that becomes quite obvious uh, looking at that memorandum. Well, I think Malcolm Blunt is the one who was going through these in the beginning and releasing some uh, documents in which some other people said, oh, aha, aha, you know, he doesn't know this or that. And then as Malcolm went through it further, he goes, oh, these guys were sent over on a job to do, to infiltrate the AARB, and they're coming from the Pentagon, and they're on duty, and they're, it wasn't just Fletcher, there were some other people there. They were meant to discredit instead of, and he, he actually said, I feel bad about this now because people just read page one, and then they jumped to conclusions, and then they didn't read further about these guys, and... Uh, I guess you wouldn't think it'd be that bad unless you didn't, if you, once you knew about George Joannides doing like the same thing in 1978, uh, you know, being in charge of making sure people have any, anything important they don't find, you know, in, in lack of... Uh, right. Yeah. So... Well, what gets most, mostly distributed when, when, you know, the fruits of the ARRB interview with Proudy um, have, have gained discussion in the last couple of years out there has been the summary. And the summary is, is, uh, is specifically designed to uh, support uh, the sort of ill feelings that these people had uh, towards Proudy, uh, even ahead of talking to him. And, and that's where the term, uh, the leader of the group, uh, Ray, uh, uses the word hatchet job. After reading through the summary they produced and realizing that it did read like a hatchet job. So it's, it's, it's pretty logical to make uh, the association that, you know, if it reads like a hatchet job, uh, it probably is a hatchet job. And I think it was. And I think that term is uh is exactly uh the correct uh, description now len um you spoke to mr prouty uh at the end of that interview did you not yeah he called me that very afternoon when he came back and he you know he said i just came back from the city and um he said this whole thing is a setup just like 1978 those guys are are dirty and uh, i remember him saying that um, he, he just, uh, he, he warned me right away that, that, uh, there was something wrong with these guys that were, that were running the AARB and that were grilling him and questioning him that day. And, uh, he said, like, I just told him what they wanted to hear and got out of there, you know, cause he recognized that. Right. And, uh, yeah, you can, uh, you can actually read that <clears throat> not in the summary, but in the full transcript. There's a point, I think, when they start zeroing in on that 112th intelligence uh, unit that you can tell that he's, he's uh, Proudy is, you can almost hear the gear shifting in his head and he's like, okay, this is, I've given these guys the benefit of the doubt till now, but now I know. And his, his responses uh, definitely uh, kind of, change in their tone and it's interesting and it's funny that uh other people who have critiqued him no one's ever phoned me to ask him like like 
you know, hey, you knew Fletcher. Well, tell me any insight you have about this. And I could say, yeah, you know, he told me that very day he called me, right? And, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things, but it's a little amusing, you know, just that, that people, um, you know, just uh, feel the need to, to, it's like Ed Snowden or Julian Assange or something like that, you know, forget Fletcher, just look at the big picture, what he's talking about, right? You know, right. Who's, who's got a presidential unit? And and Fletcher wasn't the only guy that they were trying to do quote a hatchet job to. They were they were trying to right. um, do to a couple other colonels there. And um, yeah, so if you came out and had any, you were going to reveal anything to one of these, you know, uh, organizations like the AARB or the House Select Committee on Assassination, they had people in there ready to, you know. That that's fine. We we won't be needed. We won't be calling you back again. Thanks for you know offering what you did, and uh, and go back to sleep. Right? What's well, the poverty of these different commissions? That they're not really uh, trying to find out what happened and trying to get people to talk more. That they're just um, uh, like you say. We have to figure out how to make sure this doesn't come out and make sure this doesn't get any traction. And let's let's discredit that. And, um, you know, but the technical work of the ARRB, which was uh, designed to release the records, um, you know, was uh, successful uh, to the, you know, to a great extent, not not the full extent as mandated. So, you know, I think ultimately that board um, was was a big plus for everyone. And it was a big uh, victory uh, for the JFK film, which, which spawned it. And, and so we can keep that in mind, but, but there were definitely, well, you know, I'm 50, 50. Um, I, I like, I'll, I'll give okay. you the credit that something is better than nothing. But really when you yeah. realize that 60 years later, uh, Biden just turned down releasing stuff. That just goes to show you that the power is no. We don't want this stuff to come out. We we're not get. We'll we'll release somebody's dental records to you, but um, um, the whereabouts of Alan Dulles and Lansdale's travel plans and their promotions after the fact and things like you know what I mean. Like they're just not releasing mm -hmm. what people really want because it's so embarrassing. Because it reveals the crime, the scope of the crime. And then I think if people say, wow, they really did that, well, maybe we better reassess uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and 9-11 or other things, you know. Is it that bad? And I'd say, yeah, it is. Uh, I would say that uh, the release of all those materials uh, basically, if nothing else, proves the cover-up. Uh, I think... You know, for instance, the uh, Breach of Trust book by uh, McKnight uh, really digs into a lot of those materials, the ones uh, that, that Weisberg hadn't quite gotten to yet. And and so I, it's you can't deny it. it no, it, I agree with that. And, and also the fact that they're still holding some back 60 years later kind of backs up the cover up. You know, because if it was Lee Oswald, yeah. they would be waving it like a flag. Here it is. We got the guy, you know. So the fact that even that they're holding on to some things 
in spite of like it was supposed to be 25 years right 25 years right. after that there and then there was another three years and and then uh, and then covid two years and oh god so yeah but. well they're gonna fight and the i i people i guess assume that it's probably the cia uh i'm not sure there may be other agencies i think anything really uh incriminating has been long destroyed um and and i think what's left is they can't burn it now because because it's been identified as existing i don't think they even really know uh what it is they want to hold back, you know, for what reason? I think, uh, I think some of the, the independent researchers such as Blunt um, are far more on top of, of names and, and places and dates than, than any of those people. So they're just kind of reflexively holding anything back lest it get into those guys' hands and they can, they can make sense of it for the rest of us. But anything that you know, the average person could look at and go, oh, my God, you know, it is all true. I think that's all been disappeared long, long ago. Right. I, I spoke to, to Oliver Stone in Quebec, and when someone asked him in one of the panels, you know, saying, well, what about Ed Lansdale on that? He meant to say, and this is what he was saying, is that we don't have any paperwork. We don't have any other, there's no real avenues to discuss because those things aren't around that we could make into our new documentary, The Destiny Betrayed One, right? But other people mm-hmm. took it as saying, mm-hmm. oh, see, he said there's nothing there. But like you're saying, anything of any importance has been excised and deleted. And we're lucky we even found uh, hotel receipts and travel plans that were in, uh, I think, Stanford University. Which, right. You know, so, so that's the kind of thing that happens. That Yeah, some of these things, there isn't any more. And uh, you either just take, you know, that skeleton footprint fossil of saying okay well he was in here the night before he was there he was in the hotel texas right and then he you know there's a picture of him in dealey plaza what does it all mean to me it doesn't mean he was the gunman but it just means that oh there's some organization going down there and you know what he did you know psychological operations so uh you know are you satisfied that, that the cia and its allies are involved and for me i am i don't have to uh you know argue the point too much. I think that's what Fletcher brought out. He said, listen, this is what these kind of organizations were doing, you know, like it or not. And it's like Edward Snowden telling everybody, look, they're spying on everybody. They're collecting everything. Don't think, you know, they might not have time to read it all right now, but they're collecting everything. So I think the interview that the ARRB did with Proudy is basically, at this date, kind of just a footnote because there was no information developed and they tried to, you know, claim that that the interview served as some huge refutation of his his work and his writings and his his interviews. But clearly, with the passage of time, it's ever more obvious that it wasn't that. It was designed to be that, but it was a failed attempt. It's been surprising to me that certain people have revisited this footnote and are trying to promote uh, the concept that, that this whole military records team who, who 
came up with the plan to interview him and conducted the interview um, were, were some kind of uh, truth-telling body that, that pulled, you know, the wool that was covering everyone's eyes. And, and now we know the truth when, when the actual exact opposite is, is actually correct. Um, anyway, it got a little bit of legs and, and they share the summary and people just read that without really quite grasping that it's a incredibly superficial biased document. So that kind of was the motivation to, um, put together, uh, the article and of course, Kennedy and King are kind enough, uh, to publish it. So it's, it's there as a uh, reference point uh, if and when uh, these type of things come up again. Otherwise, you're playing whack-a-mole, you know, on the forum. Someone will come up and go, blah, 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 and, and you have to kind of tamp that fire down, and then someone else is doing it over there, and, and it just, then it just becomes this repeating game, and, and, and people lose sight of the fact that uh, it's all kind of, bad data uh, to begin with. Well, that was a McAdams technique that uh, even if he was exposed and said, what you're saying here is just totally wrong, a month later he'd repost something in another forum. He would keep repeating it, right, because that was, that was his purpose. That was, that was what he was to do. I, I glummed on the term opposition research. I mean, that's a, a kind of contemporary term, but that's, that's what he was producing, basically. Let's find anything. It doesn't have to be true that makes, you know, uh, the target look bad. And let's just keep, keep, keep repeating it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a technique uh, often found in, in politics where it, that, uh, politics is a zero-sum game in, in some respects. The whole point is to get over the finish line and, and win, you know, whatever, whatever the contest. But trying to create an, 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 you know, an account of history in an academic sense is not a zero sum game. And, uh, there are, uh, you, you know, objective means that can be used to determine, uh, what is or isn't the truth or what is or isn't closer to the truth. It's not, you know, we don't have the full picture at hand. So anyway, I just felt that, that had to be done. And, uh, and then the, the, the other uh, portion of the article is uh, focused on uh, an essay that was published in Esquire magazine in November of 91, which I wasn't familiar with until uh, earlier this year. And uh, I Reading through it, I thought, wow, this is one of the, the kind of key, key articles that appeared in that year um, bashing Oliver Stone for making the JFK film and a sort of preemptive strike against any influence that that film may have gained in its release. Um, the ARRB interview, in a way, was, was pointed back towards uh, Oliver Stone's JFK film. And uh, so the persistence of that backlash 30 plus years later is, is really kind of remarkable. Uh, but that's, 
that's the source of all these things. I think Jim DiGenio sort of made made a point of saying that too. This is this that we're having this discussion. It all is part of the backlash to that film decades later. Amazing. Well, there's another link that you mentioned. People didn't realize how how dark this is. Is uh, I had a battle with Wikipedia about correcting. Mm-hmm. lies about Fletcher and it just went on and on until uh, I was charged with vandalism for correcting stuff and then I was um, blacklisted for editing the page you mean? yeah right and then also for even adding a link adding a link to the um, Fletcher Prouty reference site that I, I made a site for Fletcher where you could read him in his own words and the articles that he wrote and letters of the month and commentary and that and they deleted that then after some battle with a few moderators i was whitelisted where i was allowed to mention that he does have a website which is his own website but oh my god in in the arguing with those guys uh, the the gamiel guy uh gamaliel or whatever his name is uh so that's just a, a fan site it's just a site to, to hawk t-shirts Several people said there's there's no Fletcher Prouty t-shirts for sale. What are you talking about? There's only letters of the month. It's a Fletcher replied. There's this commentary. There's rare articles. There's there's everything about Fletcher Prouty that you'd want to know. And a guy who was around that era, I think between 2004 2010, just just kind of summed up everything that was going on then. And he wrote that Anatomy of an Online Atrocity. Which is a well. Yes, and I think that is a uh, classic article about internet narrative keeping and internet censorship. Yeah. Uh, classic article. And, uh, and the, I was proud it goes one way day that there were, even. I was proud that one day a professor from some California university was teaching political science and he called me to say, I'm bringing this up in my class today i just want to be sure that what they're saying is this true did this really happen i mean because he was kind of in shock <laughs> and i said yes and yeah phone me back if you have any other questions or details right it's just you won't believe the shit that went on and uh, luckily people were able to um save some of the the comments and reasons for the deletions and that which they finally deleted that page uh, under it's like it was called talk or discussion, whatever they do, but then it was totally deleted, so people couldn't go back and forth because a moderator said, "You can't say this; uh, it's only your opinion." And then me or other people would go, "Here's the document. Here's this. Here's where he was. Here's his military records. This it, it's all true." And if they didn't like something, they would just it was a, a an effort to slander someone, like like the ARB interviews, right? And it's classic yeah. when you read those emails of the people talking beforehand, how they're going to handle this. It's not as if, you know, here's somebody who was there in the Department of Defense and he was around those people. And if if uh, the 112th was asked to stand down, who would have made the phone call? Who, who could have handled that? How do we have evidence that it happened? It's just, you know, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's a, and, and, and then secondly, your article does bring up Fletcher was on various talk shows, and one talk show was called Radio Free America, and people don't like that. They go, oh, that's the Tom Valentine, right? Now, luckily, I have these cassettes of all these interviews. There's quite a few. I mean, I'll just say maybe there's 10, right? But I, several people, like you all, you mentioned Carl Lauren Live out of L.A., right? And so he's on every time Fletcher's on these shows. They ask him, tell me about your book, The Secret Team. Tell me about your days in the Department of Defense, 
You were there from 1954 to 1964, January 1st. He retired, I guess, right? But anyway, um, nine years in the Pentagon. That's what they wanted to talk about, and that's what he talked about. Yes. The odd time there was, uh, I think there was one show when the Challenger blew up. And somebody called in and asked him what he thought of NASA and, you know, and, you know was this an accident? And, you know, just like that kind of thing on a, a talk show when people call in. But um, for people to say that, well, the Tom Valentine show is um, it's an anti-Semitic show and therefore Fletcher is anti-Semitic. And they go, well, did you listen to it? You know, like, did you listen to the show? Did you listen to what Fletcher talked about? Did you listen to the interviewer? So, um, you know, this... This slander by association that I always say, if I like Deep Purple and they were on Warner Brothers, but then they also had a hip-hop band that said Kill the Cop, am I supposed to boycott all Warner Brothers work that I don't like hip-hop and I only like heavy rock, you know? So, I mean, here's the publisher. No smoke in the water for you, Len. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's just like, uh, here's the publisher. They publish rare and out-of-print books, and the secret team was one of them. And I think you also yeah. mentioned that the Leonard Lewin book was another one they reprinted, right? Yes, they and, did. And yep. so, of those books, like Fletcher said, listen, read the book and let the let you know the reader decide if he agrees with it or not. First of all, right? So I just well, urge there's there's a very valid point, Len, is that all of these criticisms that are discussed in the article have nothing to do with Proudy's actual work. They're not criticisms of his books or his lectures or the content within those. They're, they're all these other kind of ridiculous, irrelevant uh, notions. Yeah. So, you know, the Esquire article is, is interesting because it starts out kind of bashing Oliver Stone and then it morphs into bashing Jim Garrison. And then in the last third turns its attention to, uh, to Prouty. The author taps in to a little group of, of anti-right-wing researchers. I guess that's the best way to describe it. And then they were the source for the Esquire author to, to use to discredit Prouty. And from what I could tell was try to spark some kind of movement within the JFK production office to... Uh, to eliminate Mr. X from the film if they could, because they were just about at the point where they'd be filming those sequences with uh, Donald Sutherland. So these accusations of ties to kind of right-wing extremist racist people kind of came out of contemporaneous work that was happening in 1990. But it's very, again, it's very superficial. Right. Like you mentioned, they don't ever quote a page out of his book or an article he wrote, no. you know? So, no. It's all kind of links and stuff like that. You've passed over to me numerous, I've listened to like seven or eight of these Tom Valentine shows, and there's no controversial topics or anything that's extreme or, or anything even close to being that. And yet it's just, it's just the position of these researchers is uh, they're uh, how I say they're very politically opposed to an organization such as, as the Liberty lobby or the spotlight newspaper or, or other associated things. And so tend to see it in the worst possible terms, I could say. So 
So the Tom Valentine show was sponsored by the spotlight. And these people, in their mind, the spotlight is sponsored by the Liberty Lobby. And thus, the entire purpose of this organization is to distribute extreme and hateful content. Even if it doesn't, that's what its ultimate purpose is. And so they, they never listen to any of these programs. So they, they, well, I'm glad you listened to a few of them, right? Yeah. The interviews would go, there is no extreme content. There is no, uh, there's no controversy at all. So, yeah. And then the other points, you know, it, they're really they're talking about things that happen in the space of a few months. And, and then extrapolating, you know, all sorts of, of crazy concepts. One of which is, it seems obvious to me, is, is, is this idea that, that Fletcher was, was some kind of right winger, or, or one of the researchers calls him an extreme from the extreme right. And another one of them says <laughs> Fletcher Party was a fascist. And it's oh, just, you've got, yeah. what? what? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, easily thrown in, you know, those type of overarching statements are easily thrown aside when you just do a little bit of, of checking into it, right? I mean, they want to associate him with this, this one group through, through, through a small handful of, of associations, but they don't recognize his, his work with John Judge or, or David Ratcliffe or Daniel Brandt. And, and you can't. Or he spoke at the Holocaust Museum, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I saw a link to, because I put one of the Tom Valentine shows up, you know, where he, you know, I think the movie JFK. I don't think it got, I don't think it got actually linked in the article, but you should throw it in the, in the, in the show notes. Right. In the show notes for this interview, then I'll put that. So if anybody wants to hear, well, who the hell is this Tom Valentine guy? You know, it's just like, I, I didn't mind him. You know, now I didn't listen to the entirety of his show. All I listened to was like that. You know, every time Fletcher was on, they'd mail him a cassette saying, "Here's a copy of your right. show." So Fletcher had all these cassettes, and then I went and um, you know, for the CD-ROM, I many of them. I but sometimes they're just duplicating, you know, because they'll they'll sure. ask him the same question or another a different guest will ask the exact same thing. I mean, a different host. Right, and then he answers it the right. same way. So sometimes it's a bit of, uh... but anyway, um, I'm glad I listened to them all. What was what was interesting for me, Len, was looking into these these kind of politics in in the early 1990s was how how kind of it's it's being repeated again today, and people people have very little tolerance for uh, you know straying outside of the box. And they are also quick to identify people with policies that maybe they don't advocate simply because they're seen in a photograph with some other guy or, or they speak at a particular event or, or whatever. Well, how many times um, have you heard Robert Kennedy Jr. called an anti-vaxxer? You know, oh, he's a crackpot and well, an anti-vaxxer. It's, it's like, what? Have you listened to him? You know, have you? No, you haven't. Yeah, and just this, just in in recent weeks, I've seen him labeled many things <laughs> that that seem it seemed to be that that the labeler isn't really aware of what they're talking about. Well, I'll I'll go this far. It's as if that the more of a threat, or you can tell this guy's really going to reveal something or change it, we have to attack. The, the The crazier the attacks are, then you realize that this guy's on to something. So when, when they t- 
talking about Proudy or or anti-Semitism and this or calling him a fascist. It's that they're getting worried that, that the stuff that he's telling Oliver Stone and is going to reveal, which he's already revealed in his books, if you read them, is what they're afraid of. They don't want the people, you know, same thing. Right, like Joe Rogan said to Robert Kennedy Jr., he goes, I just couldn't believe your book, The Real Anthony Fauci. And I kept thinking, if this isn't real, you would have been sued. So therefore, I had to put the book down because what you're telling me is so shocking and uncomfortable, but yet you haven't been sued at all. So what you're revealing is real. And now, you know, they're they're calling him every crackpot name. Right. But not not debating what he's talking about, right? Well, ultimately, the most interesting thing about the Esquire article from 1991 was the, you know, he did the sort of uh, associating Proudy with with figures on the on the extreme right as a main as a means of discrediting him. And then the final part of the essay follows on that and brings up the the NSAM Vietnam information and introduces bizarrely John Newman as sort of someone with with the better more more I don't know sanitized version of JFK's decision to to remove American personnel from Vietnam which was in a way in a way revealing that that was the big issue that sort of the establishment in general had with the JFK film. And I found an interview with Fletcher from 1994, where he basically said that. He said that it was the most important fallout of working on this movie for me personally. And, and what he's referring to is that uh, he realized that what the critics were ultimately about were uh, preventing public discussion of NSAM 263 and 273. And that's the information that that Fletcher uh, provided to Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone always credited him uh, with with being able to to make, as he said it, a bigger movie. It made the film a bigger movie because it brought in much bigger policy decisions and potentially, you know, an active an active motive to to remove this man from the presidency but but that was the thing that ultimately stuck in everyone's craw and that's the reason i think ultimately proudy uh came under attack because he was the guy responsible for for taking the discussion into that territory okay very good well i'll urge everyone to read your article and also further then listen or watch fletcher proudy make up your own mind you know I just have been uh, a student of what Fletcher has written. And, and of course, when I was making the CD-ROM for him, I put together, there was many, many articles that he never got published anywhere. And I said, well, what are you going to do with all these? You know, for one reason or other, um, a magazine uh, didn't get there. And there was you know, all the letters between Jim Garrison and himself and letters uh, between Oliver Stone. And, um, you know, in your article, there's at least a photograph. I forgot I took this picture, but it was of all the Tom Valentine shows and there were these cassettes. And back then it was just, you know, you recorded a show on cassette. And I'll, I'll post one of them up, up and you people can listen to it for themselves. 
you know and i just would be thankful if they did once they do that you can you got a good foot to say well wait a minute um i heard what he said and what you're reporting is not what he said you know right and yeah. uh be better for it all right then before yeah well i'll say your work len has been much appreciated and uh and also the fact that your direct association with with uh, Mr. Party has put you in a position where you're you're personally not just witnessing, but in in some cases, abs actually involved in these efforts. Your your personal experiences are also part of this story. Oh well, I don't know what you mean. But you mean to to battle the censorship of Fletcher? That's right. You were directly involved in the whole Gamaliel. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, I see. Scenario. Right. So, because I, yeah, what you're saying is that that I started and and actually I had some web problems right now, but I was running Proudypedia as well, and that was the site just to to battle that. But I don't think that'll be up by the time this interview airs. But if anybody wants to send in a donation, now's the time. I'm trying to re. Sites have kind of gone down on me here, and uh, that's one of them that I have to relocate and uh, but but proudy.org is still running and block off radio is running and uh some of these other sites and i will i, I don't know if i'll how many of these i'll i'll put up of these um cassettes i have but for sure there was one or two that you that you just liked you saw oh, this is classic fletcher so i'll i'll put them up right of course i think anybody who spent time with him caught the wisdom from you know people like john judge and dave radcliffe and all that they well like you know they were we were lucky to meet fletcher and talk to him mm-hmm. he was just worthwhile knowing and he had so much knowledge that you could almost ask him about any kind of topic and he would say well here's the way we did it you know in that era here's the way you know this is what we did and if it's uncomfortable or not right but uh all right is there anything you want before you wrap up i often give people just a chance to no, I've got nothing to add. As I said, I put the I put this article together basically to provide a kind of one-stop location to be the counter voice to these criticisms. And basically, yeah, that's how inquiry and, and academic pursuits work. There's a point and there's a counterpoint. And so we needed to get the counterpoint articulated properly. And, and it's there for anyone who's interested and, and will stay there. So I think that's great. All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. Keep me in the loop. Anything up, just email me. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, Len. You're very welcome. Thanks for your time today. Cheers. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. Today, we're going to speak to author Jack Myers, who has a new article up at Kennedy's and King. Hello, Jack. Hi, Len. Thanks for having me on. I've been on once before, and uh, I think it's been about four years, but I'm glad to be back. It's been a while then. Yeah. Yes, it has been a while. I think it was uh, August of 2019. Uh, I guess that three or four years is a big blur. I don't remember anything. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. That, for that. It was my original article on why, why Officer Tippett had stopped his killer, and uh, I had had that published to Kennedy's and King as well. And Jim D. Eugenio was kind enough to edit that for me as, as he was this latest article. Okay. The latest article is how Oswald was framed for the murder of Tippett. We'll get right into it. I you know, Beforehand, maybe just get, briefly, tell me what your interest in the Tippett shooting, the JFK assassination. What, what piqued your interest to do 
this kind of research and then write about it? Well, I am a baby boomer. I'm 68 years old. So I was in the fourth grade when the assassination occurred. And we were all shocked in, in the classroom. The teacher was shocked. And we had to put our heads down for the remainder of the afternoon. I, I guess in Philadelphia, we got the news sometime after two. And school didn't let out until three. So a messenger came in and told our teacher what had happened. I could see the look of shock on her face. She composed herself, waited a few minutes, and announced to the class that President Kennedy had been shot. One of the, the, the little girls in the class asked if he was dead, and she confirmed that he was, and told us to all pray and put our heads down. So until three o'clock, we had our heads down on our desks, and you, you had to confine all this excitement and upsetment for the rest of the hour. So when they let us out into the schoolyard, instead of it being a somber tone to what was going on, the kids started running around wild. And I walked home toward my neighborhood with um, two of the boys I, I walked home with because they lived near, near where I lived. And one of them ran ahead. His name was Eddie. And he ran ahead and he kicked a big pile of leaves. Back in Philadelphia on that day, it was very blustery. As people know, in, in Dallas, Texas, it was 70 degrees and, and was finally sunny for the afternoon. But in Philadelphia, it was very blustery and cold. And this boy ran ahead and he kicked a pile of leaves. Then he turned around to Billy and I and he said, I know who shot the president. And we were like, Eddie, Eddie, tell us who shot the president. And he said, it was, it was John Wilkes Booth. Well, we chased them home and chased them into his house. And then I saw Billy off because I lived on the last street in the district. And I was by myself. And as I was walking home, it occurred to me that three little fourth grade crumb grabbers like us, a hundred years later after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, knew who John Wilkes Booth was and, and that he was famous. So at that point, I became very interested. Even before I, I, we, anybody had any idea who the suspect was, I became very interested in this man who would be accused of shooting the president. Fast forward a few months later, after things had quieted down a bit, Oswald had been killed, and the um, Warren investigation was underway. My grandmother and mother were sitting in our living room having coffee, and they got onto the discussion of Mrs. Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, and her relationship with Marie Tippett, the widow of Officer Tippett. And one of the topics that came up was how much money citizens across the United States had been sending to Mrs. Tippett. And they mentioned the uh, total at that point, which was something like $600,000. Well, I was a working class kid growing up in a row house in Philly, and money was always tight. And there were times, for example, if money was not available for the Saturday afternoon at the movies, I would have to go out on the street and hustle for it. And I would also often go down to the grocery store to the Acme uh, supermarket in our neighborhood with a radio flyer red wagon and pull orders home. In, in, in big city neighborhoods in the 60s, a lot of times there was only one car or even no cars in the family. And housewives were in the habit of walking to the grocery store, which would be nearby, using the shopping cart to fill up their order, and then having a young boy take it home in a, in, a, in a radio flyer wagon. And I was often down there at nine or 10 o'clock in the morning to do that so I could have money for the afternoon movie. So a dollar to me was very precious. And when I heard that Mrs. Tippett had received $600,000 in the mail, I, I was quite startled. And 
And I was always from that point also somewhat interested in the Tippett case. And especially as years went by and I became an adult and I would read about the case, I began to notice that the Tippett case in particular had largely been overlooked. And um, I always wondered what had happened, why the case was overlooked, and did it have any significance or was it somehow intertwined with the, the JFK assassination? So that's basically how I got interested in particular in the Tippett case. Plus the neighborhood, Oak Cliff, was very similar to neighborhoods in which I grew up and lived as a teenager as well. Good. Very interesting. All right. Well, the article, How Oswald Was Framed for the Murder of Tippett, and it, part one is the witnesses, part two, the Oswald double and the purchase of the murder weapon, part three, the manipulation of Oswald. So let's start with part one. What is there to the witnesses that uh, is worth writing about? Well, the witnesses were very interesting. In the murder of JFK, you basically have witnesses. You have all the people in Dealey Plaza who heard the shots, who saw the president being struck and the motorcade going away and possibly saw shots or smoke coming from behind the picket fence and the grassy knoll. In Oak Cliff with the murder of Officer Tippett, you do have a couple of possible eyewitnesses to the actual shooting. And then you have several witnesses in the area who hear the shots and or see the killer run away from the scene. The authorities have maintained for years that nine witnesses identified Lee Harvey Oswald as the shooter of Officer Tippett, but their testimony is often contradictory. It's strange. It is filled with errors. Plus, we have this other issue that has been going on in the case uh, that is very well documented in that someone had been uh, um, acting as an imposter or uh, pretending to be Lee Oswald in the months and actually the few years leading up to the assassination. This goes as far back as 1960 when uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the um, head of the FBI, actually sent out a memo to his agents that someone was impersonating Lee Oswald, who at that time we were told was a defector living in Russia, that someone was in the United States using Oswald's ID and birth certificate and to be careful uh, because this was going on and, and to be aware of it. So we have instances of Oswald being impersonated going back at least three years uh, after Oswald was back in the United States and leading up to the assassination. We have reports of Oswald firing widely at targets at a local gun range in Oak Cliff and bragging about his Mannlicher Carcano rifle and how accurate it is. We have uh, Oswald test driving a car at the Lincoln Mercury, the downtown Lincoln Mercury in Dallas, and bragging about um, how uh, he was treated better as a working man in Russia than he was in the United States, and that at that point he didn't want to buy the car. Although he took the salesman out for a very terrifying ride on the Stemmons Freeway at uh, supposedly 80 miles an hour. But we are told that Lee Oswald never learned to drive. So this, this, uh, this incident is, is, is very strange. And, and even leading up to the assassination the week of, we're told Oswald went into the local diner and caused the scene and was cursing the waitress and uh, really drawing attention to himself, even though 
records show at that time that Oswald was at work at the Texas School Book Depository. And finally, on the morning of the assassination, just a block or two from the book depository, we have a, a clerk whose name was Fred Moore, who was sure that Oswald had come in and flashed a, a driver's license and asked to buy beer and pico brittle, which is a kind of a pe peanut brittle uh, favorite in the South that had, was sprinkled with coconut. And Moore thought this was a very unusual purchase that someone would come in early in the morning to purchase bottles of beer and a pack of, of pico brittle. And then the man came back later to show ID and buy another bottle of beer. And uh, of course, we also we know very well that during the day of the assassination, that Oswald arrived at work with Buell Frazier, his friend from the suburbs. They drove in together uh, from Irving and that Oswald was in that building until the assassination happened. So it could not possibly have been Lee Oswald who was in that convenience store. So there is substantial evidence to show that someone was acting as an imposter and, and, and was impersonating Oswald leading up to the day of the assassination. Yeah, and one imposter, there may be two. There may be more than one. One's enough for me. Yeah. As long as we have one out there at 10th and Patton in Oak Cliff, it's cer it is certainly possible that that, Oz, that that imposter could have been the person who, who killed Officer Tippett. Well, you go on to say that it's in the 1970s when people started getting their hands on the Warren Commission and started going through it, thinking that this is not believable, what they wrote, their conclusions. There was just, I think, a, a paperback condensed version of the 26 volumes, right, and conclusions of the report. And, uh, you know, what do you mean shot from the front, shot from behind, you know? Right. Yeah, even the doctors in Parkland. I mean, you've had some of the doctors at Parkland Hospital who simply refused to believe the report. They say that you know, they were experienced with handling gunshot victims and that the, uh, the wound in President Kennedy's throat was obviously an entrance wound. It was not an exit wound. And, um, and these people have remained, have, have held this view for 60 years now. Some of them, I believe, are still alive. And until the time of their death or even today, they believe that the report was not correct and that President Kennedy was, in fact, shot by at least one bullet from the front. So there you have, um, if you're going to believe the, re the Warren report, lone gunman, you have a conspiracy, then you have this um, unbelievable report, which is going to be shown just to be, be full of holes and lies and obfuscation. And then it's taken well, average citizens to to go through it. Right. It was an enormous report, I think, with 26 volumes and, and, and other attachments. It was not indexed, if I believe. It was hard to read. And it was thrown together quickly. President Johnson had ordered that the, the report had to come out. Obviously, he wanted it out before the election in 64 when he ran against Barry Goldwater. And so the report was um, was hurried. It was thrown together. And... Even worse than that, uh, people who worked on the report mentioned how the conclusions were pre-drawn, meaning uh, there would be chapters that would be uh, drawn up for them to write or work on. Why did Oswald kill President Kennedy? How did he kill President Kennedy? They didn't start 
from square one and say, okay, let's, you know, let's look at the evidence and see where it leads us. They had a preconceived conclusion. And that conclusion was Oswald acted alone. He was a lone nut assassin. And, and everything that was done was done to achieve that end. So that report could be compiled and be uh, published and disseminated to the public by the fall of 64 before the election. And that's, in fact, exactly what happened. And it, it, it just took a lot of time for people to comb through that report and, and to fact check the evidence. And uh, as time went on, further and further discrepancies began to appear and they started to snowball. Okay, so let's get into um, the reasons they had to name Lee Oswald of the, the killer of Tippett. Because it's kind of funny, like, well, the, a cop died, so Oswald had to have done that. And I think one of the people said uh, in the theater, oh, sh you know, shoot the president, will you, when they were there, really, to, to arrest him for, for shooting Officer Tippett. Right. Well, obviously, Tippett was killed within a mile of, of Oswald's rooming house, and he was killed within a mile of the Texas theater where Lee Oswald was arrested. So it's a natural assumption. It wasn't an everyday thing in Dallas that a police officer would be shot and killed um, ostensibly for what appeared to be no reason. And so when Oswald was arrested in the theater, it was not apparent that he may have anything to do with the assassination, but that was already a thought percolating in, in people's minds. Paul, let's get into that then. Okay. Tippett was killed at 10th and Patton. He was assigned last minute to that district in Central Oak Cliff. There's been a lot of controversy as exactly why Tippett was there and what he was doing there. We do have a radio transmission right before one o'clock from the dispatcher assigning Tippett to that district and simply to be to be uh, available in case any calls came in. But we know from eyewitnesses that Tippett was in Central Oak Cliff even before that transmission. And there is no reason that we can discern why he would have been there. Uh, Tippett was spotted at the Gloco Texaco, or I'm sorry, the Gloco gas station at the um, far end of the Houston Viaduct. The Houston Viaduct was the bridge that connected downtown Dallas and Dealey Plaza to Oak Cliff, which is the inner ring suburb of Dallas, where Oswald lived um, in a rooming house on North Beckley. Uh, Dealey Plaza is probably only about two miles from uh, the, um, the rooming house. So Oswald lived close by to where he was working. He would commute by bus downtown to go to the um, Texas Book Depository. Tippett was killed less than a mile, almost a mile south of the rooming house and just a few blocks east of the theater where Oswald was arrested. So this all happened in a fairly uh, small geographic region. And, um, but it's a very, very tight, very tight timeline. One of the biggest discrepancies and uh, points of argument in the case is the exact time that Tippett was murdered. Uh, he was cruising east on 10th Street in Oak Cliff when he stopped the pedestrian and was shot by the pedestrian. The officials, Dallas authorities, and later investigators for the Warren report claim that um, Tippett was probably killed no earlier than 12 or 115 and possibly as late as 116 or 117. And the reason they do that is that 
Oswald's um, rooming house person, the um, not the landlady, the uh, uh, the person who cleaned up. The uh, she she reported seeing Oswald at the rooming house between one and one o four. She could pin the time down fairly well because she thought that the bulletin had just come on about the president's assassination. She was intensely watching the TV to get updates. When somebody came through the door, she claimed it was Oswald. Oswald went to his room and only spent a few moments there. And she believes he came in at one and left at 104. During that four minute interval, she claimed also that a, a Dallas police car stopped at the front door or stopped at the, in the street outside the front door and tooted its horn twice as if trying to tell, get somebody outside so they could go. Uh, the police car left. Oswald came out of his room a few moments later, uh, supposedly with a new jacket on. But instead of going out the front door and walking south to the area in which Tippett was killed nine-tenths of a mile away, Oswald uh, went north and was standing at the bus stop. And the last time that Mrs. Roberts, the cleaning lady, saw Oswald, was when he was standing at the bus stop, which would have taken him north, not south to the um, uh, neighborhood in which Tippett was killed. Uh, people have walked that distance. It's very difficult to walk the distance in time. It only gives him approximately 11 minutes to get to the scene. And it's, it would have to be a very, very fast walk or maybe even a jog to get there in time. However, most of the eyewitnesses on 10th Street claim that the, the shooting happened several minutes earlier. Most eyewitnesses put the shooting between 106 and 110. And in that case, there is no possible way that Lee Oswald could have walked from his rooming house to 10th and Patton, the scene of the murder, in time. Uh, it, it was not physically impossible. There are also two people who were at the theater the Texas theater where Oswald would be arrested later that afternoon who claimed to have seen Oswald in time at the movie in time to see the start of the war movie. There was a double feature and they claim that Oswald was in that theater at one fifteen, uh, by one fifteen, and as early as one Oh seven, which would have made it impossible, impossible for him to have been present at 10th and Patton. So we have a lot of things that suggest that Oswald could physically not have been present at 10th and Patton and could not therefore have shot Officer Tippett. And that's why the timing is important because, you know, the Warren Commission had to fudge these times to make things work out. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the death certificate or the, the, the time of death listed on the paperwork at Methodist Hospital for Tippett's death was 115. How could the man be shot at 115 or 116 and then be pronounced dead a few miles later at the hospital? Now, the, the ambulance did get there very quickly. The ambulance came from the used funeral home. I, I guess back in those days, some of the funeral parlors would double as an ambulance service as well. And the funeral home was only two blocks, two, and, two or two and a half blocks away from the murder scene. Uh, the police dispatcher got the call. They, in turn, called Hughes Funeral Home, who dispatched two drivers and the ambulance. 
they did go to the wrong address because the person who uh, called in the shooting was a block away, a block farther to the east. So they actually went a block too far and had to backtrack. But they probably picked up Officer Tippett's body, I would say, within five or six minutes. But there's no way that they can get Officer Tippett to the hospital and pronounce dead at 115. It's not. It's just not possible. Um, but uh, it, it's it's very similar in many respects to the single bullet theory out in Dealey Plaza. They fudged the facts and they manipulated the facts to make them fit. And they those facts were made to fit a predetermined outcome. And in Dealey Plaza, the predetermined outcome was that Lee Oswald had used his Mandler Carcano rifle to shoot uh, President Kennedy using three shots. And that the magic bullet did all of this damage in both the president's body and Governor Connolly's body. Likewise, out on 10th Street at 10th and Patton, they had to have Oswald get from his rooming house at approximately 104 all the way to the scene in time to shoot um, Officer Tippett. Uh, the citizen who actually made the radio call, which has been recorded and anyone can listen to on YouTube, was a man named T.F. Bowley. He was picking up his wife uh, at her job, I believe, at the local utility company. And he had his daughter in the car. And he was very conscious of the time because he told his wife he would pick her up at a certain time. So when he came upon the scene, he was driving west on 10th Street. Suddenly, as he drives onto that block, he can see a small crowd gathering and a policeman's body lying in the street. So he pulled up a few car lengths uh, ahead to make sure his daughter wouldn't be exposed to too much. Uh, he got out of his car. He walked over to see if he could help Officer Tippett, which uh, he couldn't. Officer Tippett was beyond anyone's help at that point. And, and Bowley approached the police car. Others, other witnesses had tried to use the police radio but didn't know how. Uh, Bowley got on the radio and was able to call in uh, that an officer had was down. He had been shot. And it was between Marsalis and Beckley Avenue and that they needed a cop car out there immediately. At that time, the police told him, you know, we don't want a citizen using the radio. Please get off the radio. We already know about the shooting. As Bowley was making that call, he glanced at his watch and his watch said 110. And he was very certain about that. And that was, uh, you know, that was made in the police reports. Uh, Helen Markham, the main witness, said she thought the shooting happened at 106. And on and on, we have several witnesses saying the shooting happened at 106 to 110. And, and Bowley did not, Mr. Bowley did not see the shooting. He only happened on the scene afterward. So we can gather from his checking his watch that it was likely that Officer Tippett was shot more at 107, 108, and certainly not any later than 109. Okay, exactly. So we have the witnesses putting a time down, but then the Warren Commission's having to fudge things. And uh, um, he kind of. It's, it, it's the only way it would work, Glenn. It's the only way it worked. And that lets you know, like, from right away, that they had this preconceived thing. They were going to blame one guy and they were going to make the evidence fit rather than just follow what happened. Right. Well, in all fairness, 
Oswald was arrested in the theater later that hour. He, uh, the shooting happened, depending again on, on your time frame, anywhere from 106 to 110, or if you're the Warren Commission, 115, which would give uh, Oswald barely enough time to have walked to the scene. Oswald was arrested later at, oh, 145 or 150 at the Texas Theater. And he did have a pistol on his person. In fact, um, when, he, when he was arrested, he struggled with the police. That's how he got the, uh, the damaged uh, left eye. So he had a swollen left eye from, from struggling with the police. He was hit in the eye. They put him under arrest and they took him downtown. And um, ballistics would later show that that pistol had that the shells found the shells that were found at the scene. The killer shot Officer Tippett four times. The number of shots is somewhat in dispute, but we know that four slugs were pulled from Officer Tippett's body. The killer, after he retreated from the police car and made his escape on foot, dropped four shells, four thirty-eight pistol shells. Those shells would later be matched to Oswald's, the gun that Oswald had allegedly purchased, to the exclusion of all other pistols. So the shells do match Oswald's gun, or at least the gun that was found in his possession when he was arrested at the theater. The slugs, however, that were pulled from Officer Tippett's body during autopsy do not match the shells. So we have a very strange... um, circumstance between the shells matching the gun, but the slugs, the actual bullets not matching the shells. Um, so the, as Detective Jim Lavelle once admitted, and he was the detective in charge of the Tippett investigation, he, by the way, is the same detective who was handcuffed to Oswald in the basement of the Dallas um, Police Department when Oswald is shot to death by Jack Ruby. So Detective Lavelle admitted that the ballistics in this case were a mess. There is an extreme problem with the ballistics. Well, that's strange. How, how could that be? You know, because if uh, the Oswald carried the same gun that he just shot Tippett with, then if he was arrested with that gun, then, um, you know, they would match. They, they should match, but the shells did match. And, which makes one wonder, how is this possible? Well, um, the slugs themselves, there were three Winchester, Western Winchester slugs in Officer Tippett's body and one Remington Peters. The shells were two Winchester Western and two Remington Peters. So the slugs do not match the shells. And the the only way that the authorities could explain this is they said there may have been a fifth shot and the fifth shot. uh, The only way this is possible is if the fifth shot missed and that one of the shells was not recovered and one of the slugs was not recovered, but the authorities admit that this is pure speculation. All evidence at the scene and all evidence that was collected seemed to indicate that no more than four shots were fired. In fact, the, the witnesses, and there were more ear witnesses than eyewitnesses, the people at the scene and in the neighborhood who heard the shots, almost all of them say there were either four shots or fewer than four shots. The shots came very close together. 
Um, Officer Tippett was hit with a fusillade of shots. He was hit with somebody just squeezing the trigger one after the other. And some of those, some of the people who heard this, I think some of the shots came so close together, they sounded like one shot. And that's why so many people in the neighborhood thought they heard two or three shots. Some, some of the people correctly thought they heard uh, four shots. Uh, the car manager, the uh, used car lot manager, Ted Calloway, from most of a block away, thought he heard five shots. But he was in, he was not within direct earshot. Ted Calloway was in an office and there was a building, uh, the building at 400 East 10th Street, uh, a large uh, white house was between him and the shooting scene. So that more than likely, I believe that what Ted Calloway heard uh, when he thought he heard a fifth shot was an echo. And this is exactly what authorities said in Dealey Plaza. So many people thought they heard more than three shots and that they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, not just the book depository. The authorities said, well, these people were mistaken because they heard echoes. And that's entirely plausible. But once again, on 10th Street at 10th and Patton at the scene of the tippet slaying, we have the same situation. The people who were close heard four shots or less. And a few people who were farther away heard four or five or possibly six shots. And I suggest that what those two or three witnesses who were farther away heard were echoes and that we have, in fact, four shots. The, the, we have four slugs and we have four shells and we have the majority of people hearing four shots or less. And if Officer Tippett was shot four times and only four shots were fired, Lee Oswald has to be innocent because the shells don't match the slugs. And of course, the next question would be, why do the shells match the shells and match Oswald's gun? And, and that's the really interesting part, I think, that we have to discuss today. Okay, go ahead then. Oswald's gun was a, what we would call, I guess, a Saturday night special. It was purchased through the mail, and it cost $29.95, which sounds very cheap today. It was not insignificant then, but it cost $29.95 and was ordered through a coupon in a magazine. The first thing that's odd about that is in Texas in 1963, Gun control was almost non-existent. Lee Oswald could have walked into any sporting goods store, put cash on the counter, flashed an ID, and walked out with an untraceable gun. Uh, he could have actually bought the gun at a flea market or uh, a backyard sale. There was no license required to sell guns. So if you bought a gun in person, and you were of age in Texas, you could pay cash and walk away with an untraceable gun. And if somebody was to buy a gun for a nefarious purpose, it makes no sense to order it through the mail. Oswald's gun was ordered from Seaport Traders. Uh, and we're talking about not the rifle. We're talking about the 38 uh, special, the 38 handgun revolver that was purchased through the mail. 
And uh, the paperwork on this gun does not make sense. Authorities said, well, you know, we have the paperwork on the gun. And when you look at the purchase, they have almost nothing. They have a copy of a receipt. And in order to buy a handgun, you had to go through certain, um, you had to go through certain um, checkpoints in order to do that. And I'm going to look here for a second to bring those up. The, the gun had to be, um, uh, you had to get a certificate of good character, for example. So you have to go to a judge or somebody in the county and show that you're a person of good character and get sort of a waiver from them in order to buy the gun. So that was the first thing you had to do. Uh, the second thing you had to do was to fill out a form to show that you were of legal age and to show ID. And that was not done. Uh, at, least, at least we have no record of it. There was no record that the gun was ever picked up. There was no record of any postcard being sent to the post office box. In order for Oswald to have bought this gun and picked it up, he had to send in the money, and he only sent supposedly $10 in. We don't know if it was cash or money order. He sent $10 to Seaport Traders in California. They were supposed to ship the gun by uh, Railway Express, the Railway Express Agency. They were to ship it to Dallas, to their office in downtown da Dallas. They were supposed to send a postcard to, to Oswald's, um, to his post office box. Oswald was then supposed to go to REA, to their office, to pick up the gun. And he was supposed to fill out the paperwork. The only thing we have is a copy of a receipt. And it was not signed by Oswald. It was signed by somebody named Paxson. So we're being told that Oswald purchased this gun through the mail, never, never handed in the proper ID, only sent $10 in in cash. We have no proof that the, the, the rest of the money was ever paid to REA, to the shipping outfit. We have no proof that the, the money was ever remitted to um, Seaport Traders. We have no eyewitness that Oswald came in and picked up the gun. Um, there, there just isn't any proof that this transaction really happened. Uh, and it would have been, it should have been impossible for Oswald, who had his post office box 2915 in Dallas, Texas, for Oswald to have that gun shipped under an alias. The coupon that was sent to Seaport Traders said Alec Heidel. The post office box was under Oswald's name. And the person who picked up the gun, supposedly, at REA offices, the shipping office, signed the name Paxson. So there is almost no proof that Oswald ever purchased this weapon. So that's the first thing that um, is a real red flag. But the bigger thing is the way the gun this particular gun was handled and the way it was sold, the way it was marketed. Uh, it was, it was sold through a magazine uh, by coupon. And that's why all of these measures were in place 
they wanted to prevent a, a child from being able to send in, you know, go into their parents' pocketbook or wallet, pull some money out, send it in, and get a gun through the mail. And this is why these why these safeguards were in place. But this particular gun was a Victory model, Smith and Wesson thirty eight. The Victory model was a gun that was specifically manufactured by the Smith and Wesson Company for the war effort in England during World War II. Uh, basically, uh, during World War II, there was uh, concern that the Nazis and the Germans were going to invade, uh, ha have an actual land invasion of Great Britain. And because of this, uh, one of the ways that they, they um, took precaution was Smith & Wesson sent a lot of 538s to Great Britain, and those were put in storage just in case uh, the Nazis had invaded the island. That never happened. Therefore, those guns remained in storage throughout the war. Years after the war, seaport traders had the idea to purchase these guns as war surplus back from Great Britain. So they were exported to Great Britain during the war, imported years later. The problem that seaport traders had was that by this time, by the late 50s and early 60s, the ammunition that was used by that old victory model World War II surplus Smith & Wesson revolver, the ammunition was out of favor. It was called the 38 regular ammunition. After the war, police departments and military and eventually even the general uh, public came to prefer what was known as the newer 38 ammunition. And it was known as the 38 Special. It had, uh, it basically had more stopping power. It was a more powerful bullet. And owners of 38 began demanding that, 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 that new guns be made to use this, this 38 Special ammunition. The Victory model that Oswald supposedly purchased and it was sent back from Great Britain, was just a regular 38. It couldn't handle the 38 special ammunition. Therefore, seaport traders sent the entire lot of 500 guns, 500 or so approximately. They, they sent them to a gunsmith in California. The gunsmith re basically changed all 500 guns. He modified them. Uh, the one thing that he did do was the original guns had a five inch barrel. Those were shortened to two or two and a half inches for, for concealment. P th these were being sold as personal defense weapons that could be easily concealed. But the, the other thing that he did was he either rechambered the cylinder or he swapped out the cylinders so that the new cylinder or the new modified cylinder could handle the new 38 special ammunition. The reason they had to do that was the 38 special ammunition had different dimensions. It was longer than the original ammunition and it was slightly thinner. And the old 38 could not shoot. You could not use the new 38 special ammunition with the old guns. They had to be modified. 
gun in question here and all 500 guns in that lot were modified. They were rechambered so that they would now shoot only 38 special ammunition. In doing so, um, they left the old barrels intact. The, the old barrel was never rebarreled. So what that meant, and this is the important point in all of this, that barrel was slightly oversized for the 38 special ammunition that was now being used. When the gun was fired, the bullet would travel through the barrel and it would take an erratic path. With, a, with the, the original gun, if you would use the old 38 ammunition, the projectile would go through the barrel the same way every time it was fired. And because each weapon has microscopic distinct characteristics, uh, different nicks and, and bumps and scars, because each gun is microscopically different, they leave unique impressions on a bullet. And when a gun is, is manufactured to fire a cer certain bullet, that bullet will go through that barrel the same way each time. In this particular case, though, with a rechambered gun, that does not happen. The bullet is a little bit too small for that barrel. So it wobbles or bounces or takes an erratic path. What that means is every time that rechambered gun is fired and the ammunition, which is slightly too small for that barrel, travels through the barrel, it does not strike the barrel at the same points each time. Every bullet will have slightly different marks on it. And so to sum this up, you cannot match the bullets to the gun. Um, therefore, the, the slugs that were in Officer Tippett's body could not be matched to Oswald's gun. They could also not be excluded. And that's the important point. If a regular gun had been used in this conspiracy, what would have happened is the, the other shooter would have shot Officer Tippett, and we have Lee Oswald in the theater with his gun. The bullets from Oswald's gun would not have matched the slugs in Officer Tippett's body. However, because we're talking about rechambered guns, where the slugs cannot be matched to the barrel, all the um, investigators and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, their firearm experts, when they look at this, all they could say is we can't match the bullets, the slugs from Officer Tippett's body to Oswald's gun. They cannot be matched, but we can't exclude them either. Therefore, they had to turn to the shells, which were conveniently left at the scene. And those shells have been the po a point of controversy for years and years because it made no sense if you're if the shooter, if the killer was using a revolver. The revolver does not automatically eject the shells. Only an automatic weapon will automatically eject the shells. That's why the police who originally arrived at, at 10th and Patton believed that 
Officer Tippett had been killed with an automatic weapon. And that's what uh, I believe it was Gerald Hill sent out over the police radio. We believe the suspect is armed with an automatic pistol. That proved not to be the case, but it is understandable why the police immediately might suspect an automatic weapon. Hill had not seen the shells. The shells are clearly marked special, but Hill had not seen them. He had not seen them picked up. The, the shells were picked up by two different witnesses. If, if Hill had picked up the shells himself or had seen the witnesses pick them up, he would have known automatically they were from a revolver because they were spread over quite a distance. They were spread over at least 100 feet. The automatic shells would have been left in a pile. They would have immediately upon being fired, exit from the gun and have fallen into the street. But that's not that's not what happened. But for years, we've had this argument that perhaps it was one or more people using an automatic weapon who killed Tippett. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case at all. We've also had speculation that the shells were switched later on because Officer Poe, who was the patrolman on the scene, he claimed later that he marked the shells with his initials. When he testified before the Warren Commission and was shown the shells, he couldn't find his uh, initials. So he said he couldn't verify and identify these shells because he couldn't find his initials. But the detective in charge, Jim Lavelle, later said that Poe never marked the shells. He was covering himself and that they usually didn't mark the shells. That was something that just typically wasn't done and that Poe was afraid he would get in trouble. So these different things that happened confused the case and made it sound like there was some kind of nefarious activity happening after the murder that the police were pulling. Uh, they, were, they were switching guns, they were switching the shells, or they were hiding the fact that Tippett was killed with an automatic weapon. I don't believe that ever happened. The shells at the scene were dropped by the killer on purpose. What really happened in this case, and best evidence shows this, those shells were purposely dropped by the killer. They were fired by the gun in Oswald's possession, but they were fired sometime long before the murder. All the killer had to do, or the people working with him had to do, was fire the gun, empty the shells, retain the shells, you know, just hold on to the shells. Then that gun later was reloaded and given to Oswald. Oswald thought, and this is, you know, what Jim Garrison and many others believe, Oswald thought he had penetrated the assassination. He was a low-level intelligence officer. Uh, that's what he had been doing in New Orleans, and that's what he was doing in Dallas. He thought he had penetrated the assassination. And in fact, there had been a plot known as the Chicago plot a few weeks before. There was um, going to be an attempt on Kennedy's life in Chicago. This was confirmed. The man went to jail over it. Uh, his name was Thomas Valley. He was an ex-Marine. He worked in an office building. And that office building in Chicago overlooked the motorcade route that President Kennedy was supposed to take on November 2nd. What happened was Kennedy was supposed to land in Chicago, take a motorcade, 
and ride from the airport along the highways in Chicago to uh, Chicago's Soldier Field. Uh, Air Force was playing Army, I believe, in a football game. Kennedy was supposed to be there for the game, I believe, give a speech and then fly out later. That visit was canceled because a man named Lee tipped off the uh, FBI in New York that there was a plot to assassinate President Kennedy in Chicago. Kennedy never landed in Chicago. The trip was called off. The police followed Thomas Valley, uh, the man supposedly who had the weapon who was going to uh, assassinate Kennedy and who, whose, whose office overlooked the motorcade route. They, they stopped him on the pretense of a traffic stop. His car was filled with guns and ammunition. Uh, he had been making threats that he was going to kill Kennedy. Uh, instead of being a communist, he was supposed to have been a John Bircher. So he was a right winger and he had made uh, uh, public threats that Kennedy should be assassinated and was arrested and found with all this equipment. Uh, a, a local person in a motel, one of the cleaning people at a local motel also uh, saw four Cubans uh, or Latin American men that she thought were Cubans with high powered rifles in, in the hotel room. She reported this to authorities and the Secret Service and FBI checked this out. But unfortunately, people in the hotel room were tipped off and disappeared. I believe one or two were later picked up, but there was no evidence to hold them. But Thomas Valley, who in so many ways is so much like Lee Oswald. In fact, I would call him Lee Oswald on steroids uh, because of his mental issues, his past with the Marines. He even worked, worked at the Atsugi radar base in Japan, just like Oswald had done in his career in the Marines. Um, and so Thomas Valley was uh, uh, sent to prison, I believe, for a few years over this aborted plot. But this plot was, was stopped and it was prevented by a tip from a man named Lee. And, is, you know, Lee is not that common of a name. Could that have been Lee Oswald or O.H. Lee, the man who was... Um, uh, a rumor at the rooming house on in um, in Oak Cliff at Gladys Johnson's uh, rooming house. We don't know, but the suspicion is that Lee Oswald was allowed to think he had penetrated the plot when the plot in Chicago was called off. That the plot in Dallas was on, and Lee Oswald became the patsy. Um, when, when Oswald was working for Guy Bannister and David Ferry in New Orleans, he took orders. He was told, Lee, you're going to be handing out communist flyers today supporting Castro. We want you to stand in front of the trademark. We want you to stand in front of this building or in Magazine Street and hand these out. And he was filmed doing so, as, as Garrison Jim Garrison would later describe he was being sheep dipped. They had films of Oswald handing out communist literature. They had him appear on a local radio station in New Orleans talking about his, um, uh, his love for Fidel Castro and how he was an avowed Marxist. All the time, his assignment in New Orleans was to penetrate uh, Castro groups. So he was an agent provocateur. Oswald was not the man that 
we were told he was. He was not a communist spy. He was not a communist agitator. He was not a communist assassin. He was just the opposite. He was working on the right to try to discredit people on the left. And because of this sheep dipping and because he was portrayed as a communist and because he had worked infiltrating these groups, it made him the perfect patsy in Dallas. It made him the perfect person to set up because of his background, uh, because of his so-called defection. Oswald had never really defected. He was part of a fake defector program. He was trained by the intelligence community. Uh, he, he was trained in Russian. He didn't pick this up as a, as a truant on the streets in, in uh, New York and in, in New Orleans. He, he was trained in the military on how to speak Russian. And, and he was sent on a mission to Russia to act as a defector. And his, his history coming back proves that. He, was, he never renounced his citizenship. He was even given a loan by the State Department. The State Department loaned Lee Oswald money to get set up again in the United States so that his family, his wife and his children and himself would have a job and would have a place to stay in Fort Worth and Dallas. He was not a defector. So... So Oswald w was set up, and I believe the day of the assassination, his orders were, Lee, carry this pistol in case things get rough. If anything goes wrong, we want you to report to your handler, and you'll be picked up and, and taken to that meeting. And that's what happened to Oswald. He was picked up in Oak Cliff. He was driven to the theater, and he was supposed to meet with his handler at the theater. Uh, Oswald in his pocket had two torn $1 bills. This is something that was known at the time as used in spycraft. If you didn't know the person who you were meeting, you would give them a, a certain saying, the moon is blue, and you would pull out your torn dollar bill. And, and they would turn out, uh, pull out their torn dollar bill, and if they matched, this is the right person. And in fact, that's what witnesses say that Lee Oswald was in fact doing in the Texas theater that afternoon, he was changing from seat to seat and sitting next to people. He sat down, he sat down next to a pregnant woman who got up and left. <laughs> she, she was creeped out and, and left the theater. Jack Davis, one of the witnesses in the theater saw him. Oswald sat down next to Davis, didn't say anything, sat there for a few minutes. When Davis didn't say anything, Oswald got back up and sat somewhere else. But Oswald was in that theater, according to witnesses, by 107, maybe 110, certainly by 115 when the movie started. And Officer Tippett was being shot or, or wet, already was shot. Uh, the ticket taker, who also ran um, the candy stand, um, uh, sold, sold Oswald a bucket of popcorn and confirmed that Oswald was in that theater at the time that the murder of Officer Tippett happened. So we have ballistics that show there were four shots. We have ballistics that show that the slugs don't match the shells. If the slugs don't match the shells, then those shells weren't used to kill Officer Tippett. And I have a very good explanation in the rechambered gun as to how 
that charade was pulled off. All that was needed was a sleight of hand in order to pull it off. Uh, you simply had to have the shooter kill Officer Tippett. He obviously, this was, this was an expert assassin. Uh, got the drop on Officer Tippett. And as he walked away from the scene, pretended to unload his gun. And all he had to do at that point was to drop four shells along the way. And those were the shells that helped to implicate Lee Oswald in this murder. Yeah, quite a tale. It's uh, a lot of information you've laid out there. It just goes into the, the fraud of the whole case. Well, Len, when you, when you first take a look at this case, I mean, you have to be honest. When you first look at this case, um, the evidence against Lee Oswald looks insurmountable. It looks like a slam, slam dunk case. But the more you get into it, the more the evidence just doesn't, um, it doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. Uh, there were there were three witnesses who mentioned how Oswald or how um, the killer dropped those shells, and one of them was Domingo Benavides, who could not identify Oswald because he only saw the killer from the back. But he talked about how the killer walked along and threw the shells up in the air. You know, he would he would walk a few feet, slow down, and throw a shell walk a few feet more and throw a shell, just flip it up into the air. It was Benavides who later, later used his Winston cigarette pack, those old paper and cellophane uh, cigarette packs. He took it out of his pocket and put the shells in the pack to give those to police. The police did not recover the shells. The witness did. But the shooter made sure that those shells were recoverable. The other two shells were found on the patent side of the corner house. So as the killer went around, the, uh, jumped through the hedges as he cut through the corner property and cut across the lawn, he jumped through the hedges and went along the side of that house on the Patton Avenue side going south. He, he deposited two more shells there. And the witness on Patton Avenue, who was Sam, uh, Sam Ginway or Ginyard, Sam Ginyard, said, I saw him. He took the shell between his forefinger and thumb and checked it and then he dropped it and then he took the next shell and he took it between his forefinger and his thumb and he dropped it this was Ginyard's testimony to the Warren Commission and then finally uh, the young girl who lived she was only 16 uh, she was married at the time Virginia Davis but she was only 16 she scoured the side yard and she quickly found the other two shells. That's how the police found off, had all four shells. They were found, all four of them, by the witnesses. And she told, she told the Warren Commission, Oswald left them right there for me to find. <laughs> so there were no missing shells. I, I, could, I could buy a missing slug, but there were no missing shells. There were only four. There were only four slugs found in Tippett. And if there are only four shots and the slugs don't match the shells, Oswald is innocent because his gun didn't fire those shells at the scene. Those shells were fired sometime previously as, as part of this conspiracy. And uh, the conspirators just got a little too fancy, Len. What they did was, instead of using one brand of ammunition, they had to mix it. 
because Oswald's gun was loaded with both Remington Peters and Winchester Western ammunition. And the two types of ammunition found at the scene were Remington Peters and Winchester Western, but they were in the wrong numbers. There were three, three Winchesters and one Remington Peters uh, slugs in the body, but two Winchester Western and two Remington Peters shells. They don't match. And if they don't match and there were only four shots, Oswald's gun did not fire those shots. And the only way you pull this off is with a rechambered gun because the slugs will be consistent with his gun. But they would have been consistent, and this, or I'm, I'm sorry, the slugs would have been consistent with any of the 500 guns in that lot because they were manufactured at the same time by the same manufacturer, Smith & Wesson, and given to the same gunsmith in California to have the barrels cut and the cylinders rechambered. And the fact that, that a rechambered gun was used in this homicide is not accidental. It's not by it happenstance. It was on purpose. And the purpose was to frame the Patsy Lee Oswald. They did a very good job. I guess uh, you could say it was good enough for government work. Uh, it's taken 60 years to really unfold what happened. But all of the people involved, of course, are gone. And Lee Oswald didn't even survive um, the weekend. I mean, he didn't make it 48 hours. And the entire uh, circumstances around the Ruby killing of Oswald are just, they're, they're, they're just too hard to swallow. I mean, they're just too improbable, too impossible. And the first, off, the first officer on the scene, whose name was Poe, I believe his initials were J.M., J.M. Poe was the first, uh, or I'm sorry, not Poe. Um, Poe was the officer who, who handled the shells. Sergeant Croy, Sergeant Kenneth Croy was the first policeman on the scene at 10th and Patton. He was there so fast that the Davis girls, Virginia and Barbara, who came out of their house, thought he had been there when the shooting happened. Uh, Croy was there within a few minutes. And no other police were there for probably a good 10 minutes because so many, so many of the officers and patrolmen were down in Dealey Plaza. Uh, the other officer, uh, his name was Mensler. The other officer in that area was involved in a traffic accident up on Davis Avenue. So he was indisposed. Tippett was by himself on 10th Avenue when this happened. And... Um, there wasn't any expectation of help coming anytime soon. But Croy was there surprisingly within a few minutes. His testimony was he was off duty. He was downtown. He asked some of the police officers he, he saw after the assassination if they needed his help. They told him, no, just go home. And this was at a time when they, the police department was frantically calling in all the officers that could uh, because not only did they need people downtown they needed people to back up in the surrounding neighborhoods where they had drawn officers from to go downtown so um croy croy's testimony was that he just happened to be passing by he happened to hear over the radio about the shooting and he was just a couple of blocks away and he sped to the tippet scene 
he was the person who was handed a wallet. A wallet mysteriously appeared at the scene. And the wallet he held and later turned over to Captain Westbrook. Captain Westbrook showed the wallet to agent, FBI agent Bob Barrett. The wallet contained Lee Oswald's identification. And it also contained the identification of another person, Alec Heidel, who was this fictitious person who happened to be in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was Oswald's fictitious or um, uh, uh, organization that was supporting Castro. Of course, Oswald was the only member, but he had this fictitious member named Hidel, and he had uh, identification for Hidel. But the the wallet was shown to Agent Barrett, and Captain Westbrook, at the tippet scene, asked Barrett, do you know either of these two characters? Do you know Lee Oswald? No, I don't. Do you know uh, Alec Kaidel? No, I don't. Okay. Um, it, so it's been proven that Westbrook had this wallet. In 1996, this, this was off. The business with the wallet was forgotten about. In 1996, Agent Jim Hosty, who was the FBI agent in charge of handling uh, Oswald while he was in Dallas, technically because Oswald had been a defector uh, and the president was in town, they wanted to check on anybody who had a, a strange background who might be a threat to the president. And they wanted to keep tabs on him the first year or two to make sure he wasn't up to any good. So Hosty was in charge as the FBI agent in the Dallas office of keeping tabs on Oswald. He really didn't do too much. He stopped by the apartment once or twice. And um, Lee Oswald got upset because the FBI was checking on him. And he wrote a note to Hosty saying, you know, stop bothering me, stop checking, stop bothering my wife. And uh, Hosty uh, destroyed that note later under, under orders from his superiors. But in 1996, after he was retired, Hosty wrote a book. And the book was called, the title of the book was Assignment Oswald. And in that book, he recounted how his friend and fellow agent, Bob Barrett had been asked by Westbrook at the tippet scene about this wallet. We found this wallet. Who is, you know, who are these people in the wallet? Who, who does this ID belong to? Do you know them? And Barrett said, no. Well, when this information came out in Hosty's book, he didn't real, realize the firestorm that he had started because there should not have been an Oswald wallet at the tippet scene. It is well known that after Oswald's arrest at the Texas theater, they put him in an unmarked car, which was Captain Westbrook's car, with, I believe, four detectives, and they drove Oswald downtown to Dallas police headquarters. During that time, one of the first questions that the officers and detectives asked Oswald is, what is your name? And Oswald just looked out the window and sort of shrugged. Like, I, I'm not answering any questions till I, till I have my lawyer. And uh, they're asking him questions, and Oswald is doing his best not to answer. Uh, finally, one of the officers, I believe it was Paul Bentley, leaned over, and he saw that Oswald had a billfold in his pocket. 
Well, he said, all right, smart guy. He said, uh, we'll find out who you are. And Bentley reached in Oswald's pocket and pulled out the wallet. And he opened it up and he says, all right, are you Lee Oswald or are you, is your name Alec Heidel? And Oswald's reply was, well, you're the detective. You figure it out. And this was, this story was, got a lot of airtime because it supposedly showed how mean and how callous Oswald was, uh, that he was a psychopath and that, you know, he, he was liable to kill anyone and he was not afraid of the police. Of course, what Oswald was doing was just telling the officers, I'm not talking to you. You know, I'm, I, I want to get to the station. I want to get a lawyer and I want to have my attorney handle this. But it is well documented and it is in the police reports that Lee Oswald's wallet was recovered from his person in Captain Westbrook's car, unmarked car on its way to the da uh, Dallas police headquarters for Oswald to be booked. Oswald did not lose his wallet on 10th Street and Patton at the Tippett scene. So now we have two wallets. We have one at the Tippett scene and we have one at the theater. How many people carry around two wallets? And you really think Oswald left his wallet at the Tippett scene? Now, when this book came out in 96 and Hosty wrote about Bob Barrett being shown the wallet at the Tippett scene, Bob Barrett was contacted and he said, oh, yes, uh, Captain Westbrook showed me the wallet and I saw the identification for Oswald. I saw the identification for Alec Heidel. I definitely saw Oswald's wallet at the Tippett scene. And then the researchers went to the Dallas Police Department and asked them about this. Uh, well, you said that Oswald's wallet was found on his person after his arrest. Was it found at the Tippett scene or was it found later at his arrest? And they said, oh, oh Bob Barrett is, is mistaken. It's been many years and he must have seen that wallet at police headquarters. In fact, we're sure he saw the wallet at police headquarters and we were asking him if he, if he knew Oswald or Heidel at the police station it's been so many years, retired FBI agent Barrett must be mistaken. And Barrett was absolutely sure that no, he had seen the wallet at the Tippett scene. Well, a couple of researchers uh, were doing their due, due diligence. They went to the, uh, they went to the uh, TV station and went through the old archival footage. And lo and behold, they found... TV news footage from about a half hour after Tippett's murder, they found TV, TV news footage taken at the Tippett murder scene with Agent Barrett standing there and Captain Westbrook, with Westbrook showing Barrett and the other police officers the wallet. It is there on film. It is irrefutable. Bob Barrett's story was backed up. And in fact, years later, after his retirement, one of the other police officers at the scene, uh, this was Lieutenant Len Leonard Jez. Before his death, Leonard Jez said to an interviewer, don't let them bamboozle you. That was Oswald's wallet at the Tippett scene. And 
uh, Sergeant Croy also years later signed uh, signed a, a photo of himself and Lavelle and the other police, the police who handled the Tippett shooting. He signed that photograph. Um, Sergeant Kenneth Croy, uh, first on scene, recovered Oswald's wallet. So the evidence is very clear that Oswald's wallet was found at the scene, but that Oswald also had a wallet on his person at the theater. That means that the wallet at Oswald at, at, at the Tippett scene, which disappeared, was never seen again after that day, that had to have been planted. So when you look at the planted shells, the planted wallet, and you you have a, a jacket found two blocks away that supposedly was Oswald's, but was a planted jacket, the planted Eisenhower jacket. You have all this evidence coming together, plus the eyewitness testimony from the theater that Oswald was in the theater at the time of Tippett shooting. This all adds up to the fact that Lee Oswald almost certainly did not kill Officer Tippett. It would have been impossible. And, and, and this was no accidental murder. Uh, people have theorized over the years that uh, Officer Tippett was involved, for example, in a love triangle. Uh, author Joe McBride has talked about that and has done a lot of work. That may or may not have been true, but had nothing to do with this homicide. Tippett was drawn to 10th Avenue. He thought that there was a fight in progress at 10th and Marsalis. There was a reason for him to be on 10th Avenue. And he saw a young man walking away from the scene of the fight two blocks east at 10th and Marsalis and stopped that man, not because he thought that this man might be a potential assassin, you know, had been involved in the JFK assassination less than an hour before. He stopped that man simply because he thought he might have been uh, involved in a neighborhood disturbance and fistfight in which a man eventually was stabbed. That man was stabbed and thrown into the back of an automobile, uh, a blue Monterey, I believe, which sped away from the scene. Tippett, after he had placed a call from the um, top 10 record store, uh, according to one witness, stopped his car and looked into the back seat. And he stopped that car on West 10th Avenue. He stopped the motorist car, never said anything to the motorist. The motorist said that Tippett, and he could read the nameplate on Tippett's uh, uniform. Tippett stopped his car, motioned for the motorist to stay still, looked into the back seat, saw nothing, ran back to the, his patrol car, backed up and turned around and headed east. It would only be a few minutes later on 10th Avenue when Tippett would uh, stop the young man who shot him. And that young man was headed west. Even the police report from that day said that the, the killer was walking west. The only one who said that he was walking east was Helen Markham. And the Warren Commission had to take Helen Markham's testimony as far as the direction that the killer was walking because there's no way that Oswald could have been walking west and got there in time. He barely or probably couldn't have gotten there if he was walking east. So as you said, everything was fudged and everything was made to fit. But over the years, 
each of these pieces of new evidence have come into view. And when you place them all together, it tells a different story. And that story is that Lee Oswald was a patsy and was framed not only for the murder of JFK, he was also framed for the murder of Tippett. And the Tippett murder was very important because as um, Will Fritz told his detective, Jim Lavelle, we don't know about this Kennedy business yet. We don't have enough evidence. So you go out there in Oak Cliff and you make sure you wrap up this case tight. And the last, uh, the, 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 uh, Sergeant Croy, the first person on the scene, the person who supposedly found or was handed the wallet and handed it to Westbrook, he was the person in the basement closest to Jack Ruby when Jack Ruby stepped forward. And, and killed Lee Oswald. There's just too many coincidences and too many things that we're told to believe and forced to swallow for this to be true. The, the entire Warren report, Len, is it's a house of cards and, and those cards have fallen. 87% um, of the American public in the year after the assassination bought the report, bought what the, our government and our leaders told us. They, 87% believed that Lee Oswald had committed these murders and was the lone gunman. Today, 60% of the public feels just the opposite. And I think if more people uh, listen to and read and listen to the reports that you and I see, if more people went through the evidence, I think it would be 99%. Um, the Warren report is simply a house of cards and it has fallen and my little report on how Officer uh, Tippett was murdered and why Lee Harvey Oswald was framed for that murder is just one more tiny piece that so many diligent researchers have added over the years. And I have to, I have to commend them because some of them have, um, have done all this research in the, in the face of uh, withering comments, especially in the early years. Okay, very good. Well, I'll urge everyone to read your article. It's a bit long, Len, but it, it, it's, uh, it has lots of photos, and um, it, it's, it's written in little chunks, and it's, it, it's very easily read. And I appreciate, again, I appreciate Jim DiEugenio for editing, editing in the uh, article for me. He did a great job. And uh, I, I, I urge not only people to listen to your show, but cruise on over to the Kennedys and King and look at some of the other articles and uh, that um, – that he presents there. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, you know, it's mostly baby boomers and people my age who have been into the Kennedy assassination, but I would, I would like to see a younger generation get involved. It's, uh, it, it's easy for someone like myself to be interested and be involved because it was such a personal experience for me having lived through that day. And it'll be a day that, uh, that I'll never forget. Just like nine 11, for a younger generation, very, the very same thing. But um, uh, that report was compiled hastily. It was compiled, the Warren report, with a preconceived outcome, and we were not told the truth. And it's taken years for the truth to come out. And I'm just glad to be a part of the research and, and, and to have my article on Jim's site, Jim DiEugenio's Kennedy's and King's site. And I want to thank you so much for having me on as well as your guest once again. Okay, very good. Well, I'll just say keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's the case that never dies. 
it's it's always there. Uh, it's amazing that we're 60 years now th this fall, and um, uh, new information keeps popping up, and uh, it's uh, it's it's such a repository of information. And every time something new pops up, we get to uh, we get to plug it in and see how it fits. But um, it's still very much an active case. There's still very much many researchers and people like yourself interested in reporting on it and investigating. And uh, I, I just I just hope that maybe one final one final bombshell will drop. Uh, the one in 1996 with the with the Tippett wallet I think was amazing. That was the piece of information, the second wallet that pushed me over the fence. I had been on the fence, to be honest, for many years. Did Oswald do it or didn't it? But when I found out about the wallet, the shenanigans that went on with that wallet and how the existence of the wallet was kept quiet, uh, that was enough for me, Len. Okay, very good, Jack. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that and then discussing it with me today. And uh, I just hope we encourage people to read your article. I part. hope so. I hope so. Thanks very much. All right. We'll talk to you again. Uh, just email me anytime. Keep me in the loop. Will do. Thanks again, Len. Okay. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.